flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Welcome back, Flatlanders. It's a beautiful spring day outside, so we're hiding in a closet, recording a podcast for all of you fantastic listeners. I'm one of your hosts today, Lindsay Ryan, Outdoor Skills and Recruitment Coordinator for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. Do I include the tourism still, or not until July? Until July 1. Okay, Wildlife Parks and Tourism then. Good afternoon, Flatlanders. This is Nadia Reimer, Chief of Public Affairs for the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks and Tourism until July 1. I'm so excited to be talking to you guys today about this topic and to have our special guest on board who will be introducing herself here in a minute. So today we will be talking about something that most, almost all of you have at least encountered once, maybe a couple of times, or you know someone who has. Today is all about injured and orphaned wildlife. We are joined today with wildlife rehabber Kyla Beavers. And Kyla, I will let you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. All right. Hey, guys. Um, my name is Kyla Beavers. I am a mammal rehabber for native mammals here in Kansas. Um, I'm a mom of four and I work full time for Rose Hill Schools, um, live in Udall. So kind of out in the country, out away from Wichita, but still we get calls from all over the place. Um, I've been rehabbing for about four years now on my own. Um, I did it with another rehabber before that. And uh, it's kind of a crazy little adventure that I'm leading my family on, but we're enjoying every minute of it and happy to share some tips for you all. I can't tell you how excited I am for this episode. I've been really looking forward to and hoping we can record an episode like this for a while now, just because it falls perfectly in line with this time of year. I mean, with the days getting longer, warmer temps means that there's more food and liquid water and these animals are starting to uh, reproduce and raise their young. So that increases the likelihood of someone coming across a baby bird that has fallen out of its nest or dogs finding rabbit kits or even finding a fawn that looks like it could be abandoned. But we'll cover that here in just a little bit. Um, Kyla, if it's okay with you, we we have a couple of questions lined up. Do you mind if we just dive right into those? No, go right ahead. Cool. Okay. So um, the question, the first question I have is if, if someone finds a baby animal, what should they do? And I know that depends on the kind of animal that they find. So if you want to elaborate a bit more about the different kinds of animals and what to do, go right ahead. Sure. Well, the first thing is to leave it alone initially. Um, I like to tell people just to stay back, watch. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, people will be mowing and find a nest of baby bunnies. Leave them alone. Mama had them there. Mama wants them there. They're probably relatively safe there, even though you have stumbled upon them. Um, sometimes late May, people will find baby raccoons, you know, at the bottom of a tree and 
Usually mama is close by. She might be napping from her overnight hunt um, and they're just being little rascals and exploring on their own, even though, you know, she has told them to stay put while she takes the nap. They didn't listen. Um, Chances are mom is close by with those babies um, and she's watching and you are scaring her away from taking care of her babies and doing her job. So I like to tell people first, just to stay back. Um, you know, if they, if they see a baby squirrel at the base of a tree, a lot of times mom will come back down and retrieve that baby. If it fell out of the nest, um, if it's still there the next day, of course, then we kind of assume maybe something happened to mom and baby didn't get put back. So then maybe, you know, action needs to be taken, but for a while I tell people just to stay back and watch and stay far enough away that mom feels safe safe enough to go get her baby back. Um, She's not going to come out of hiding to go get that baby if she knows that you're right there. So Kyla, you've brought up two really good points. The first of which, you know, is something that our agency tries to educate folks on every year. And that is alone doesn't necessarily mean abandoned. That's right. They might just be temporarily alone. Yeah. And, and also the idea that, um, you know, most often the adult is nearby. And so if we say, well, every time I go out there, I don't see, you know, quote unquote, mom or dad. Well, it could be the presence of the human that's preventing the older, more mature animal from returning because they know to fear humans. So sometimes it's good to observe from afar, like you say, stay back and monitor it for more than just a couple hours, you know, give it a day or two and see if that situation is still there. Yeah. On that point, Nadia, you said that the adults might not come back. I know that sometimes animals will leave their babies alone completely by themselves during the day to avoid bringing predators back to that nest or wherever those animals are laying, because this time of year, predators do know that if there are adult females around, they likely have young around that are easy prey and easy picking. So they will also just leave their babies alone to avoid them getting predated on. hundred percent. Perfect example is a fawn, you know, the little spotted fawns that, you know, you you feel really lucky to see if you see them in the field, but that's purposeful. That's definitely by design. They don't want to draw attention to their young. So absolutely. Please. Don't take baby deer home. That's right. Yes. Leave the baby alone. (laughs) Yes. Leave it for Disney. Yeah. Okay. Um, Another one I want to mention real quick while we're talking about what to do if you do find a baby animal um, are baby birds. Now, here in just a little while, we're going to start seeing what I am going to call teenage birds. They're also called fledglings. And these teenage fledglings are supposed to be out of their nest. They look like they... Probably don't have all their feathers. They look a little little dorky with some pin feathers that haven't quite come in yet. Um, but they're off exploring the world by themselves. Mom and dad, they're not very far away. They probably can't quite fly yet, so they just hop around and act like they can't fly away from you. So most likely these little birds, they're just fine. Mom and dad are not far away, and um, it's best to also just leave them alone. But they do look older. They're not tiny little naked baby birds anymore. They do have feathers coming in, but they're just off exploring and having a great time, and they don't need your help. <laughs> Speaking of maybe needing help, um, Kyla, what what would one do if they – an adult animal dead and they know that that baby is actually an orphan what should they do should they actually find an orphan that they 100% know is an orphan 
Yeah. So actually one of the babies I have right now, that was the case. Mom and all of the other babies were, were deceased and there was, you know, one baby alive. So the first thing that people always want to do is feed it. Don't feed the baby anything. Um, it, that's not the first thing that a wildlife rehabber is going to do. And believe it or not, that's not the first thing it needs. Um, I tell people to keep it warm and find a rehabber. Um, a rehabber will assess the situation and see if it's dehydrated, um, if how malnourished it is, how long it's maybe been alone. If it's sick, there are, there are many more steps to it than just bringing it in and feeding it. So, um, so the, the main thing I tell people to do is to keep it warm. Always use caution when picking these babies up, wear gloves, um, you know, a, a baby squirrel with its eyes open does have teeth and it, it can bite. Um, at, same with the baby raccoon, even at a very small size, they can be pretty fierce and a scared baby is no different than a scared adult and they can bite. So I always tell people to be careful, wear gloves, keep the baby warm and um, call your local rehabber, call your local veterinarian. Um, you can call animal control. They normally have some phone numbers of rehabbers to get in touch with, but don't feed it. Yeah. Great points. Nadia, would you mind speaking a little bit on where people can find information on how to get in touch with their local rehabbers? Absolutely. So the department has done a really good job of, of maintaining a list of licensed wildlife rehab uh, rehabilitation centers in the state. And so um, Flatlanders, you can find that info by going to our website, which is ksoutdoors.com. Just look for that tab that says wildlife and nature, and then you'll see a drop down menu. You just want to click on injured and orphaned wildlife and scroll to the bottom of a page. There's a PDF that will uh, get you a list of all the, like I said, the licensed wildlife rehabbers. And uh, typically you can find one in your area. If for some reason you can't give us a call and we'll, we'll see what we can do to help you out. But on that note, most people uh, think that our department uh, actively goes out and rescues animals. And while there have been instances where, say, a bald eagle or, or another species is, is uh, definitely in danger or injured, you know, we our game wardens or public land staff or state park staff will definitely intervene. Um, but it's not it's not something we typically do on a day to day basis. We like to leave that to the subject matter experts and the people with the facilities and the expertise to really take care of those animals. We simply just don't have uh, the resources in place to care for animals at our offices. Yeah, there was, I used to work at the Great Plains Nature Center in Wichita, Kansas, and we would experience similar things. And people would, the public would bring us animals that they would find, maybe a bird that flew into a window and got hurt or injured itself. And we always had to send those animals to a wildlife rehabber because that nature center is not a certified wildlife rehabilitation facility. So they legally could not take those animals in and nurse them back to health and then release him to the wild. But these wildlife rehabbers are in place for a good reason. Um, Kyla, could you talk a little bit on why the general public can't take a baby animal in and raise it for themselves? Raccoon babies are really, really cute, but they make horrible pets. Yeah, 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 they do. <laughs> they, um, I think... Well, number one, um, wild animals do not make good pets. Um, they, no matter, 
matter how cute they are, they have wild instincts that are there to help protect them. And those wild instincts that will protect them are, are there to protect them from you. Um, and eventually that animal is going to feel at some point threatened by the caretaker and it's a bad situation for the animal and the caretaker. Um, when people bring those babies in and raise them, especially a baby raccoon all by itself, no other raccoons, um, maybe their best friend becomes the, the family dog or the family cat. And, um, and then a year later, that raccoon is full grown and getting a little bit feisty and, tearing things up and the family decides, oh, well, maybe this wasn't such a great idea. Let's put him outside. Well, he's no longer afraid of the neighborhood dogs. And so he, he can't survive when he walks up to a, a, a neighborhood dog that isn't friendly with him. You know, he's going to get himself injured or hurt. Um, when, when we raise these babies, it's, it's really important that they're raised with other species like them. And, and they, develop the correct fear of humans and neighborhood pets um, for their own survival. They, they also need to learn how to find their own food and not eat out of a food dish. You know, um, when they learn to sit and eat out of a dog food bowl and the food is brought to them every day, then when they're released, they're going to find a dog food bowl and probably and not so willing to share dog on the other side of that. So um, it's just really, really, really important for people to understand that wild instincts do not disappear from those wild animals. Um, they, they're there and eventually their instincts are going to come out and, and it's, it turns into a bad situation really quick. Yeah, those are some great points, Kyla. You know, and and something I'd like to kind of circle back to, you know, we we talked about birds and that seems to be at least for our agency one of the most common uh comments questions that we get are I found a baby bird in my backyard, what should I do? And I want to circle back to that for a few reasons. Um one because we were talking about, you know, fledglings and these teen birds and how they you know, they look so awkward. And the reason I want to touch on that is because they might look like they're injured. They're goofy. They can't fly well. And so it's very easy to mistake some of these birds uh, for just kind of a goofy teenager who's just trying to figure out life and figure out his environment, you know, their environment, figure out where food is, interacting with other birds. You know, and there's even some species, you know, killdeer as an example, you know, the the adult bird will often flap their wings and do these kind of uh, crazy dances. And that's another um you know, mechanism they have in place to protect their young. They're trying to distract you from where the nest is, from where the young are. So if you're, you know, well-intentioned, well-meaning person and you go, oh my gosh, there's this bird out here and it's flapping around like crazy. I think it's injured. It could be the total opposite. That's just a bird being a really good bird, distracting you from the young that are nearby. Um, I've had several instances where we've had a few nests, um, house sparrows, you know, robins that have uh, laid nest and we will find, you know, cracked open eggs or even, you know, young that are on the ground. Now, Kyla, do you maybe want to speak to how finding young birds in your backyard might be a slightly different scenario where there actually is something you could do and maybe want to share? Yeah. That so, you know, even you hear people all the time. Oh, my kids brought home this, 
this baby bird and um, now they've touched it and mom won't take it back. Mom will most definitely take that baby back. Um, if you can find the nest uh, that that baby fell out of, you can pick it up and put it right back in the nest. Mom, mom will continue taking care of that baby. She, um, she wants her baby just like if a stranger touches your baby, you're not going to just give it to the stranger because they touched it. Um, you, you're, you'll take your baby back. Um, same thing with baby bunnies, just because your, your kids picked them up and touched them does not mean that that mom is not going to take that, those babies back. You can put them back, um, and she'll keep taking care of them. So I always tell people to look around, try to find a nest. Um, if it's one that's just on the ground, a fledgling, like you guys talked about, you know, I just tell them again to stay back and watch, keep your cat inside, keep your dog inside, give that baby a little bit of time to get its, get its feet off the ground and, um, and let mom hover above and, and she'll keep watch over it. And, and pretty soon it'll fly away. And if, you know, the, the biggest thing that we can do is to help that mom by keeping that baby safe and keeping our own pets inside. Give it a little bit of time. Absolutely. You know, and, and Flatlanders, sometimes you're going to encounter, or maybe you already have, where you find the nest, but it's way too high. And you're like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get this little bird back in there. So something really neat that you can do is just get a little bowl, little plastic bowl, um, something that, you know, you don't mind kind of give, giving to nature, so to speak. Um, and you can just fix that, affix that onto the tree or put it near the tree where you know know the nest is. So just getting the bird as close as it can be to the nest is, is your second best option. I've done that before. Um, we've even had some birds that have made nests on the side of our house and there was no way I was going to be able to get the, the bird back into that little crevice. So I literally just took a, you know, a, a screwdriver and just screwed that little plastic bowl into the side of the house and, and mom was able to feed, you know, the little, uh, that way. So there's always an option. Um, but yeah, I definitely got to look around and, and, and when in doubt, stay back. Yeah. I think the big takeaway here is that if you do find a baby animal, just leave it outside. Don't pick it up and take it into your house and keep it overnight to keep an eye on it. Um, most likely, you're going to be breaking the law. I think in Kansas, the law, it allows you to hold on to a baby animal to transport it to a wildlife rehabber. I think it might be 24 hours. Kyla, is that correct? Um, I think it's it might be 48 hours. It might, they might, it might be as much as 48 hours, but it's, it's not a real long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, just long enough to find help. Yeah, and if you are um, caught with one of these baby animals, you can get fined up to $1,000, not to mention if you're dealing with birds that are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. That's a whole different ball game. Um, so just be very aware of the laws and regulations regarding the handling and transporting of these um, orphaned or maybe injured wildlife. And again, contact your local rehabbers, contact your conservation officers or the KDWPT offices. If you're not sure, we can definitely help answer those questions and make sure you stay out of trouble while keeping the wildlife safe and healthy and happy. Um, I do want to mention one thing though, that sometimes death not sometimes, death is a part of nature. And there's sometimes just things that people can't and should not interfere with. For example, brown-headed cowbirds 
are notorious for being nest parasites or brood parasites. So they will actually lay their egg in another nest and kick out the other baby birds of whoever's nest that they happen to lay their egg in. And those or those birds would get displaced from their parents or injured or something. And that's just the way that nature works. And sometimes it's best to just not interfere and let nature take its course. It is illegal to destroy a brown-headed cowbird nest. I'm going to put that out there because we get asked that so often. It is illegal because they are protected protected under that Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So just just be aware of that and don't destroy any bird nests. Yeah, definitely bullying uh, exists in the wild. But Lindsay, that was a great point about it being illegal. And, and something I want to clarify for our listeners is, you know, it's not just a matter of um, it's about the money or, you know, the agency is trying to, you know, uh, hamper somebody's ability to help wildlife. Um, really, what this is, is if, if a, let's say one of our game wardens stops you, how will they know that you truly have encountered an orphaned or injured wildlife? Because somebody who is purposefully taking wildlife to sell it on the black market or for whatever reason, you know, it, it, the reality is they don't know who the good guys are and the bad guys are sometimes. And so, um, you know, being a well-meaning individual and, and, and a conservationist, you know, it's, it's our job to know the rules, right? And so one of those rules is simply to not have uh, possessed wildlife. There are some exceptions. I'd recommend folks look at uh, the agency's regulations to see what those exceptions are. I think some turtles may be on that list. Um, but the other thing I might mention too is it's not just the Department of Wildlife, Parks and Tourism, but the Department of Health and Environment has regulations against this as well, including the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So it definitely is a serious deal um, to, to have wildlife in your possession. Really good points. Thank you, Nadia. I know, Kyla, that you talked a little bit about what happens if someone takes in an animal and raises that animal. It denies them the opportunity to learn necessary survival skills. One of the things that happens when someone takes in a really, really young baby animal like a bird or some other animal that heavily relies on parental care is um, something called imprinting. So they will imprint on the humans. Can you speak a little bit more about imprinting and what it does to those animals if they happen to imprint on a human? Yeah. So um, the younger the babies are when they become orphaned and, and have to be taken care of by a rehabber or someone that's not a rehabber, um, the bigger the possibility of um, imprinting. Um, fawns are really, really, they, they imprint very, very easily. Um, and what that means is they identify with their caretaker as the parent. Um, so if the caretaker is, you know, a person instead of a deer or instead of a raccoon or instead of a bird, um, they always trust that person to take care of them, um, which means they do not develop the correct fear of humans that they should have. Um, for instance, if you raise a fawn from a very young age um, all the way through the end of the summer, you know, by the end of the summer, when it's, when it's getting cold out and um, food is becoming scarce, you know, the, the grass is dying, um, that fawn would normally have its mom all winter kind of showing it to, you know, how to find, eat the dry leaves and find the nuts and um, eat the other things because the green grasses and, and clovers are gone. Um, 
they're not going to have that deer. They're, they're still going to look to you to support them and help them. And, you know, eventually if it's a buck, especially, um, rut is going to come along and then it's a dangerous situation, you know, for the human that raised it because it won't go away, um, on its own. It, it sticks around and, and they hang around and, and they, they walk up to the wrong person or they just don't have that fear of humans and they don't know how to search for their own food and they become very dependent upon humans. Um, so I know with, with a lot of birds of prey, especially, um, baby owls and, and hawks and, and eagles, um, if they're truly as an orphaned, um, you don't feed them with your hand. You know, you, you put a glove on, you put a mask on, you don't let them see your face. Um, and, and when you feed them that way, they're not imprinting on, on the human itself. Um, so, you know, there are things that, that rehabbers have to do to make sure that that, that baby is going to grow up to be wild and not dependent on people. Because the last thing that we want to do is release an animal into the wild that doesn't have a fear of humans and depends on humans for food. Oh my gosh, Kyla. I'm so glad that you brought that up um, about them becoming dependent on humans, because not only will they depend on humans to just give them handout foods or food for handout, um, but they will also defend their territory against humans because they think any human walking by is trying to take their territory or take their mate or destroy their nest or something like that, depending on what the animal is. But um, if this bird, for instance, has imprinted on humans and it's released to the wild, it will attack people walking on sidewalks and parks or wherever wherever it happens to find a place to settle down. It will just attack human beings thinking that they're a major threat to them when normally they wouldn't be considered a threat like that. Um, and it just would not be a very good situation for the bird or the human because people can get hurt that way. Yeah. One of the most common examples that I've seen over the years has been these really crazy videos where people have raised a fawn, a deer fawn. And uh, if it's a male, you know, just like Kyla brought up, rut comes around. And like we've said, those wild instincts don't go away. So when it's time to breed, that instinct is strong and it is there. And we've seen it time and time again, where people who have raised male fawns, uh, you know, bucks, and the rut comes and they get aggressive because all of a sudden you're no longer a caretaker. You know, you know, that's never our role to begin with your competition and you're, you're in the way of them breeding and getting to the females. And so just like you said, things can turn, turn pretty serious pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, something that we've kind of circled around, we haven't really addressed this just yet, but I think it's so incredibly important to talk about is disease, especially as it relates to releasing animals back in the wild. So a great example of, of why, again, it just doesn't make sense to intervene um, uh, us as humans is chronic wasting disease, right? So one of the things that, you know, we're trying to combat as a state is slowing the spread of chronic wasting disease. And that's just one disease out of many that, um, you know, select species can carry, but, you know, rabies, brucellosis, giardia, hantavirus, raccoon roundworm, um, histoplasmosis from bats. I mean, there are all kinds of diseases out there. And, and our agency um, has a, a staff member, Shane Hesting, shout out to Shane. He's our wildlife disease coordinator, extremely intelligent individual. 
And it just takes a short conversation with him to just say, okay, I'm, I'm never going to pick up wildlife if I don't have to, because he can tell you about all the dangers that are out there. But going back to releasing the animals, because that's also a reality, right? When, when we take in an animal, or if we're thinking about taking an animal, it should be theoretically with the intent of re-releasing it. But there's a risk with that as well, apart from just the animal being, you know, having imprinted on humans, but disease. And think about it. If we are unknowingly picking up an animal in one area that potentially carries a disease, and then we release it in a different area because we think it's better or, you know, we don't know where the animal came from, you have the potential of spreading a disease to a new area where it may not exist yet, chronic wasting disease being one of them. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these diseases, uh, I know for certain chronic wasting disease, you're not going to be able to tell whether or not that animal has it. They don't always look sick just because they have a disease. They are immune to it, but that doesn't mean that humans are. And there are plenty of these diseases that can certainly be transmitted. Um, Kyla, is that something, you know, uh, that wildlife rehabbers, you know, do as much time spent on educating, you know, when people bring in an animal, do we ever talk about disease or the other risks of, of, you know, what they mean to look out? Yeah. For? Yeah. Um, that's a big part of it. You know, um, like the baby raccoon I have right now with mom being dead, I, I immediately said, well, you know, did mom, did mom look like something attacked her? Did mom, was it near a road? Um, did mom have something like um, distemper? Um, and that's what killed her. And so she could have passed it along to this baby, you know, before dying. So rehabbers always try to make sure that they know the circumstance behind why the animal is in someone's custody, um, especially with fawns and the chronic wasting disease. You know, you always want to make sure that, uh, that you know the area that the fawn came from and know the parts of the state that are that are have more cases of the chronic wasting disease. Um, and then you want to know, you know, was was the mother dead on the side of the road and the fawn was laying next to the dead mom? Well, that's probably a pretty good ind indication that the mom was hit by a car. Um, mm -hmm. If mom was just laying in a field dead and it didn't appear to be attacked or injured, then that's a pretty good indication that mom was probably diseased. And unfortunately, that baby should not be rehabbed and released anywhere, um, as sad as that sounds, because chronic wasting disease doesn't show up right away. You know, that's, you, you don't see it in babies, but the baby has it and will show, show, it'll show up later. Um, after you've you've moved it to a different location. And then, like you said, you've spread that to a new location. Um, we always try to educate on rabies, especially with raccoons, um, parasites with the raccoons. You know, I had, I had a baby fox one year that um, some kids were able to just pick up and take home. And the number one red flag that I thought of was, why didn't the baby run away from the kids? Probably because something's wrong with it. Um, and the mom brought it in the house and put some flea treatment on it and gave it a flea bath because she was worried about fleas. And um, the next morning it was having seizures and it didn't appear to be able to see. And so, of course, she called for help. And the first thing I thought of was something neurologically is not right with this, this little fox. It could have rabies. It had distemper. It turned out that the flea medicine, it had a reaction to the flea medicine. Um, but it was also just 
completely filled with parasites and it took a lot of care to get it well. But that woman had that baby in her house overnight with her kids and didn't give it a second thought until the next day when it started, you know, acting sick. And so, you know, people, they, they, everyone's intentions are good in the beginning, but they don't realize that, you know, the roundworm that raccoons carry, it doesn't make the raccoons sick, but it can make everyone else sick. It can make humans sick. It can make your dogs sick. It can make your cats sick. So when you bring these animals into your home, you are, you're exposing yourself and your children and your pets to all kinds of diseases that, um, that you can't necessarily see. Um, and then, and then yeah. it's a danger to yourself. That's a great point that, you know, the, the risk doesn't go away just because the animal did too. You know, one of, one of my favorite sayings is, I don't know what I don't know. You know, so when people are bringing animals into their home, if you don't truly know the, the true nature of this animal, what diseases or bacteria they may carry, like, just like you've said, you're potentially putting your whole entire family or everyone in that household, pets included, at risk. And I know, like, when it comes to our dogs, they're especially susceptible to some, you know, bacterias and fungi that live out there from wild animals. Um, I know even just having hunting dogs, just being out in the same habitat is where, you know, some of these species roam, there are risks associated with that. And even something as simple as a tick, you know, we think that's pretty benign. If we find one, you know, you know, yeah, we'll get rid of it, but there's, there's risks with ticks. So not to put the fear factor in anybody, but it's just a reality that there are some barriers that just aren't really meant to be crossed. Yeah. All really solid points. And I really loved that story about that you shared about that Fox Kyla, because it touched on so many important things that people need to take into consideration if they do come across a baby animal outside of the realm of is it injured or is it orphan, but the diseases and the parasites that it carries. So that was that was a really good example. Um, speaking of releasing the wrong areas, since we've touched on that a little bit, I think it's worth noting that I know our episode is about injured and orphaned wildlife, but I think since we're talking about being releasing animals in the wrong areas, it's worth noting that store-bought animals or animals that you get off Craigslist or at pet stores or anything like that should not be released into the wild for a lot of different reasons. One, they're not native, most likely. Two, they probably have their own whole set of diseases that could infect local wildlife, and those diseases could then get passed on to your family or your own pets. Um, and then three, they can become incredibly invasive or they might have tag along invasives. For example, those moss balls recently have been found to, um, have zebra mussels hiding on them. And if someone throws out that moss ball or flushes it down the toilet or something, you could potentially be exposing zebra mussels to a whole watershed, um, septic system, water source. I mean, it just depends on where you're releasing stuff. So I think it's worth mentioning to please not release your goldfish into local yeah. reservoirs or ponds. Please don't let your snakes go because that's a huge problem in other states. And I just wanted to put that PSA out there. <laughs> this is Nadia Reimer and I approve this PSA. <laughs> So yeah, that brought to mind two uh, two things, and one of which you joke about goldfish. Okay, I've been with the agency about eight years, and in year one, 
I was, someone submitted a photo to me for use in the magazine and it was of a massive goldfish. And I was just telling my husband about this. And uh, it was very clearly a, a pond. It was a small water body where somebody had released their pet fish. And most often I would say that goldfish is going to end up food. It's going to end up bait for another larger, more, you know, predatory type species. But this particular goldfish got thrown in the most luckiest of waters because apparently he was the big man on campus. And so he was eating, you know, I don't know if he was eating, you know, small shad or what he was eating, but he was massive. But a more recent um, uh, situation was the alligator. Do you guys see the alligator? Yes. So yeah, we had two uh, in the in, you know in the past year, year and a half. We don't live far what from are your that thoughts spot on that where that was found. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> the risk is real. So tell us tell us a little bit about that story for listeners who maybe weren't aware uh, that there were some alligators in Kansas. Well, I didn't I didn't actually hear it from anyone except my husband. We were driving one day, and he was like, "Hey, you know, they just found an alligator. You know, it, it was not alive anymore, but." in this river right here. Um, I'm assuming probably it was someone's pet. It got too large to take care of. They let it go. It did not survive a Kansas winter, especially the one that we had this year. But, um, but how long do you think it was in that river? And, you know, for those of us that like to kayak, we have kayaked in that area. Right. And just to think that that alligator could have been there while we were kayaking, (laughs) You know, that's a little scary. It was large too. Okay. Have you guys seen Lake Placid? Yes. That movie with the gigantic crocodile that swam over from Asia in a toilet or something. I don't even know how it got to that old lake, to Betty White's pond that she was feeding. And it was this gigantic 40 foot crocodile. So Megan Mayhew is our producer of the podcast. She's listening right now, you know, hanging off to the side, doing her thing. And she also manages uh, Wildlife uh, Parks and Tourism's social media. So I'm going to say, Megan, why didn't you think of the Lake Placid meme when these alligators were being discovered? Okay, (laughs) next assignment. We've got to get that done. (laughs) But yeah, it's like it's like Lake Placid meets Jaws meets the Midwest. You know, nobody expected to find alligators. So I had heard a little bit more about that. And I and I think you're right, Kyla. I think the story was that uh, these were either stolen from a pet store or bought from a pet store, just like any other animal. They grow over time. Uh, I don't know where they, whether they were released with the intent of, you know, causing fear in the public or if it was just a matter of I simply can't care for them anymore or they got out. Who knows? But uh, word on the street was the first one actually got caught in a uh, a trapping set. So it was I think it was for beavers or otter. I can't remember. Um, but, yeah, like you said, Kyla, you know, winter. I barely survived this winter. Okay. A species that's not native to Kansas is definitely not going to survive the winter. So it's a sad, I mean, we, we make light, we make joke of, joke of this, but the reality is it is a very sad deal because there was no reason that those two speed, those two uh, animals needed to die. Um, it's just, again, there's just some barriers that shouldn't be crossed. And, uh, and that was one of them. Yeah. Um, I know we've been talking a couple of sad stories um, here in the last few minutes, but I want to I want to f- turn the table a little bit. Kyla, could you talk a l- 
a bit about the success stories that you've had as a wildlife rehabber? I know the, the true success is leaving those animals where they are, letting them grow up to be wild animals or letting nature take its course. But can you, can you talk about the success rate of taking animals into your care and tell us any fun or happy ending success stories that you've had rehabbing native wildlife? Yeah. You know, every year is different, but, um, there was one year that I, I, I got in two, two little raccoons. Um, mom had taken them fishing in someone's little fish pond in their front yard. Um, and, uh, the, the person's dog killed mom, um, and babies were left behind scared in the tree. So they were late babies in the season. And, um, so oftentimes with late baby raccoons, they need to be soft released. So when I soft release, um, at the end of the year, I soft release, um, those at my, at my property. And what that means is, um, at the back of my property, um, I've got a place that they can, they can stay and hang out and come and go as they please. But I still provide food throughout the winter to make sure that, um, to make sure that, that they, they're finding enough to eat on their own. Maybe, maybe not. And if not, I I've, I've got them covered. Um, but they're not near the house. They're back away from everyone. So I did the same thing for these two little guys. Um, I knew exactly where they were staying. Um, they were doing everything correctly, still coming and eating, but still staying in their own tree. Um, they weren't even staying in the, the shelter that, that we provide for them. Um, they had found their own tree. They wouldn't come down the tree for anyone except for me, which is typical, you know, um, if they would hear me, they would poke their head out. If anybody was with me, they would stay hidden. Um, but in December, um, we came home one evening and my, the dogs were barking and my husband said, well, you've got a raccoon right here in the front yard in the tree. And so it was dark and we go out there and, um, sure enough, it, one of those, I mean, not so little babies anymore was, was in the tree and we put a flashlight on her and, um, she had a very obvious broken leg. Um, the bone was coming through the skin, um, bad break. And, you know, we didn't know if she would accept help, if she would, um, be aggressive toward us. We didn't know what, what to expect, but, um, she came down the tree once we put the dogs in and came right to me and I took her inside and we, that was a long rehab process. Um, the vet was able to put pins and, and a plate in and fix the break and straighten the leg out. And, um, then she had to learn to use it again. She was, she was in the house and with people a whole lot longer than she should have been. Um, we did not think that she would be releasable because of that. Um, and about a year later, um, I started making her go outside again and, and, the more time she spent outside, the more time she wanted to be outside. She didn't want to come in the house anymore. And, um, pretty soon she was being soft released once again, all over again. And we, she stayed close by this time, um, in our barn and would come and go. And pretty soon she didn't need us to leave any food out. Um, 
or cookies or anything. Pretty soon the bowl was empty. And if she would hear us, she would dart out of the barn and not have anything to do with us. And so, you know, for me, that was, that was one of those, it's a sad situation sometimes when that happens because you've gotten really attached, but it's so gratifying knowing that I did my job. She, she grew up and she learned how to take care of herself and she didn't need me anymore. And, and we didn't know if that would happen with her. You know, it was, it was, we were, we were afraid we were going to have to, to keep her long-term and that's not, that's not an ideal situation. You know, when we talk about having them for pets, um, they're mischievous, they get into things, they need lots of activity. Um, and you can't provide that in your house. There's no way if you want to have a house, because they'll tear everything up. So the alternative is that they don't get the exercise they need. They have to stay in a cage. That's just not a good life for them. So, so it was very, very gratifying to see her finally find her way and get that leg fixed and be able to do that. Good. That, that's a really awesome success story. And I I thank you for sharing that. And this, these stories that you've been sharing have been pinging all these questions in my mind the, the first one I want to ask you is, how do you know when an animal is ready to be released? Like, are there certain characteristics that you look for? Um, how do you know if they're not going to be able to be released, depending on the way that they're behaving around you now? Um, can you speak a little bit on when you know an animal can be released or if it never can? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's tricky and it's different with every animal, but... Um, the number one thing is, uh, like I said before, I have four kids and so, um, they sometimes have to help with these babies and help feed them and help take care of them. Um, the less human interaction, um, the animals get the better, but sometimes that's unavoidable. You know, right now, the two that I have, I'm able to exclusively take care of them, but you know, there are times when other people have to step in. So, Um, when the animals toward the end of the summer are fearful of anyone except myself, that's a good sign. Um, you know, if anyone, any of the kids go out to help me feed and water or clean cages, um, and they run and hide or they act aggressively, that's a good sign. We like to see that. Um, and then two, when, when I leave, like with the ones that we stopped release, when I'm leaving food out, if that food is no longer disappearing, then I know they're finding enough to eat on their own. Um, One of the things that we do with the raccoons is we provide fish for them to actually catch. Um, We don't put the food in bowls anymore. We put it in, um, in logs and under things. Um, Same thing with the squirrels. We don't feed them out of a bowl. Once they're out in a a pre-release enclosure, um, they have to find their food. Um, we hide it in different places. Um, with the deer, the main thing is um, when they're eating really well out of a bottle, then I don't hold the bottle anymore. It's put in a bottle holder. Um, they, they're still conditioned to come to that bottle holder, but if they're not receiving the milk from me directly, then they'll eventually stop associating me with food. Um, and so at some point, after they're weaned, um, I provide enough food and fresh water for about a week and, and only have to go out and be around them about once a week. Um, when they run, 
away, then I know that they, they've developed that fear of humans. Um, and, and the fawns actually kind of leave on their own, um, when they're, when they're ready and there's a herd, you know, that because of where we live that come up to the pond where they're rehabbed at and they eventually will join that herd or, um, or create their own, but they, once they have that fear of humans, that's the, be- that's the best indicator that we have that they're, they're getting ready to be released. Okay, Kyla. So my next question for you is how does one become a wildlife rehabber? Um, well, I get asked that all the time. Um, and I tell people to refer to the Kansas department of wildlife and parks website. There's a whole list of requirements on the website. The, the first one being that they need to work with another rehabber, um, and get hours in volunteering with another rehabber. Um, I took a class through the International Wildlife Rehab Council. Um, It was offered here in Kansas. Um, So I was lucky enough to be able to take it over the weekend at the Milford Nature Center. And then you have to have your enclosures built. Um, Your local conservation officer comes out and inspects those enclosures, make sure that you are properly set up to handle whatever it is that you're rehabbing. Um, I'm a mammal rehabber, so I don't have the federal permits to rehab the federally protected birds. So there's a whole new different side to that part of the license. Um, And then you keep good records and turn those in every year and get re-inspected. And um, so it's, it's, it's a yearly, yearly commitment to paperwork and, and being inspected. Um, and then classes, I think it's every three years, you you have to take some more classes. Um, but that's about it. You, you also have to have a vet that you work with, which is actually not as easy to find as I imagined it would have been, but, but yeah, that's, that's about it. Okay. Yeah. We get asked that quite a bit as well. So I figured I would ask you and help you or have you help us answer that question for our listeners. The last thing I want to ask you is, is there anything you want our listeners to know about injured orphaned wildlife or wildlife rehabilitation or native wildlife or anything like that? Um, well, one of the things I get asked all the time is about pay and just to let everyone know it's not a, it's not a paying gig. Um, it is completely voluntary on your rehabbers part. Um, they are supporting it financially out of their own pocket. That means that they're buying all the food for the babies. They're buying all of the supplies, um, the vet care, all of that comes out of their own pocket. That is not something that the Kansas department of wildlife and parks can fund. So when you call your local rehabber for help, keep that in mind. Also, many of them have jobs, um, because that's not a paying job. So they have another job. So be patient with them. They might not be able to come to you. You might have to go to them to drop that baby off or at least agree to meet them. And again, leave those babies alone. Leave them where they're at. You know, let let their moms do their jobs. Kyla, that's a great point. And, And that would be my advice to folks too. You know, first and foremost, like we've said, leave wildlife wild. But If you do come across an animal that you are just adamant that they need assistance, reference that list of wildlife rehabbers before you intervene, because if there's not one near you 
or they're at full capacity and they can't accept any more animals, then you have your answer and you know, okay, I, I've done what I could. I know it's best to leave this animal here. No one's going to be able to accept them. Or you, like you said, you have wildlife rehabbers who specialize in given species and they may not have, you know, the right food or, you know, the right permissions to be handling certain animals. So do yourself a favor and do the wildlife rehabber a favor by finding that information out ahead of time before driving out um, or, or picking the animal up. So I might just throw one more last thought in, and it's something that's been floating around in my head is, uh, again, you know, this is hard for everybody. You know, even people who work at, you know, wildlife parks and tourism, it's difficult to watch animals suffer or what we think, you know, is causing them pain or discomfort um, or, you know, abandonment. But something that we have to remember, too, is that... Um, Humans are not wildlife and wildlife are not humans. And sometimes we we put our own emotion and our own thoughts into what into a situation thinking that the animal is like a dog and they're going to be having the same experience as a household pet that's lived with us their entire life. And that's not necessarily true. It's probably very rarely, if ever true. Um, but let's say uh, you really enjoy wildlife like us. We love wildlife or we wouldn't be doing what we do. Um, there are tons of opportunities to get near wildlife and view wildlife. That's a huge part of what our agency is all about. So I strongly encourage you to get out to our state parks. We have 28 of them across the state. Get out to our nature centers. That's where you really can get up close and personal with animals and learn about them. Most of them are free. They have great activities for kids. Um, many, if not most, at, at no cost. Um, so I really encourage you to go see wildlife in their habitat or in facilities where that where education uh, is being offered. And, and those are animals that we know could not be released, right? I mean, Lindsay, you could speak to that at the Great Plains Nature Center. Those were animals that you guys just went out and collected, you know, to bring into the Nature Center. There's a story behind it. But those are the places uh, there or out in the wild are the places to interact with wildlife, not in your home, um, you know, or, you know, the, you know, somewhere else uh, on your property. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, all those animals at the Great Plains Nature Center are there because they cannot be released to the wild. And that's either because they have an in, a non-releasable injury, like they can no longer fly or they have lost sight or hearing and they can't actively hunt and find their own food or they've imprinted on humans. And again, they can't be released because that's not a good situation for those birds. So these animals weren't just collected out in the wild. They were brought to the nature center because they couldn't be re-released. And this is, that's their only other option other than being euthanized. So those, those animals are in the care of humans now, unfortunately, because something happened or a human intervened and they can't be released anymore because of that. But um, we are coming up on an hour here, and I think this has been a really awesome educational and stimulating conversation, and I want to thank Kyla so much for taking time out of your busy day to speak with us about injured and orphan wildlife. If you have any questions about the subject, you can reach out to us via email. You can always message us on Facebook. Our producer, Megan, will get back to you as soon as she can and hopefully answer any questions that you have about wildlife that you find. And be sure to follow us and like us on Instagram and Facebook and follow all the up-to-date information that's being posted on our social medias. And um, get out there and enjoy Kansas. It's a beautiful spring season, and it's the weather's fantastic. And go out and enjoy your not-so-flat state. Thank you. 
Flatlander podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, the Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at kswildlifefed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.